welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of March 16th. It's Sunday night right now when I'm recording this, and I am sure all of us are knee-deep in coronavirus, either with actual patients or with preparations. First case reported in, in my area earlier today. I'm sure there are plenty of other cases that we just don't know about because we are exceptionally limited in our testing capabilities. Hope you're having better luck in that regard. We'll talk a little bit about coronavirus. I will not beat you over the head with it because I know you're all up to date and being kept up to date with this by your medical staffs and administrative leadership. So we will just focus on a few things. I will say for those of you who are scheduled to attend HIMSS, at first you were asked to fill out a form to try to get your hotel money back. And turns out that form really didn't do anything because now there's something on the HIMSS website that says contact the hotel, we're not responsible. And then the hotels are saying, well, we're not refunding you the money. This is HIMSS fault. So the ones who are in the middle getting uh, squished on this would be you and I. I don't think it's being handled particularly well. Just the communication around this is poor. I would have expected better from HIMSS. Uh, that's my two cents, and I'm done bashing them for the minute. All right, let's talk about healthcare IT news, March 12th. Eric Neal is reporting UW Medicine CIO's advice, prepping IT systems for COVID-19. So for those of you who don't know, UW is in the epicenter. As I'm looking at this right now, it looks like that area has the, the highest amount of infections right now. And I think also the high, certainly the highest deaths in Washington. Uh, actually, it looks like New York has more infections now. I'm seeing Washington at 643 and New York at 732, but Washington State has 42 deaths and New York only has six. So they've been putting out a lot of information on blogs and other resources where you can see what they're doing. They're being very transparent. It's very helpful in terms of the tools they're using, the real practical information that you might need if you're struggling with getting your programs up. So from their CIO, he talks about some of the challenges. Those challenges include the need to rapidly expand telemedicine capabilities, shifting a large portion of hospital staff to teleworking and immediate changes in the electronic health record needed to support COVID-19 care. So actions that you can take now, establish your command incident command structure. Once enacted, establish your new or evaluate your existing IT response structure. You're going to need staff for surge support for weeks or months. I think that's a key point to hone in on. This is not going to be a flash in the pan two weeks and out. The estimates are coming in six to eight weeks. In theory, coronavirus is a seasonal virus and it should go away with summer. Now, we'll probably come back again next season, but I'm hoping that this thing actually gives us a break here in a couple of weeks and that summer helps save us a little bit. Next, 
get ready to quickly update your systems. Clinical staff will need immediate changes to the EHR to facilitate COVID-19 related documentation. These updates must be quickly evaluated, implemented, and centrally disseminated as quickly as possible. Your IT personnel must be able to do this around the clock. So most of us have support staff and coverage that does go around the clock, but typically, most of the time, these people are not needed. They're sitting in reserve on a normal day. I'm not sure at two in the morning that we need to be implementing some piece of code but I guess it's possible that there could be a provider that's stuck there. There's no ICD-10 code for what they need to code and sometimes got to put that in. I guess I could see it, but I'm not there yet. Personally, I'm not sure that that kind of response is needed. What we need is during the daytime, normal working hours, people preparing in advance so that you don't need so much in the middle of the night. Next, be ready to support surging personnel. Assess how your organization can be nimble with granting access to systems and sites in emergencies. Start planning now for emergency level access that allows people to surge and flow between sites in a triage situation. And I think that's really wise advice. I know in our shop, IT is pretty narrow in terms of what you're allowed to do in the EHR based upon your role. And so you would not expect to see a primary care doctor doing something in the hospital. And so they really don't have access to write orders on the hospital floors. Well, if we needed them to, if their offices aren't busy with primary care things and, and patients are coming to the hospital, then we might need them here. So we have to start thinking about those security pieces. Take a look at yours and see if you've got broad permissions that are needed for people to switch roles quickly or that there's a process that takes care of that. The next item on the list, telehealth is critical. Build capability now. Quickly prepare multiple sites with telehealth capability. This will allow patients and providers to flow between different sites. Begin training and privileging your providers now. I think that's wise advice. If you've not set up telehealth systems it's not something that you can literally just flip a switch and deploy, although it's not terribly difficult. You need cameras. You need a way of setting up a waiting room that is virtual or that you're going to have a person who's keeping track of here's who we need to reach out to next. And look, if you can get their email, you could set up a WebEx or a Zoom meeting, you do want to make sure that these things are HIPAA secure, FaceTime is not. So it's not terribly difficult though if you don't have a telehealth vendor currently contracted and in place. If you do, fantastic, You're, you'll be using that. Next, ensure you can support telework. Plan for large-scale remote work. And I guess the question is, does, do you have the bandwidth if your entire workforce that's administrative is now remoting in, what's that going to do in terms of your pipes? Do you have enough bandwidth to handle all of that, which is beyond what you're normally doing with most people just being on site? And this will also require workforce provisioning of equipment and policies and procedures for managing a remote workforce. So right now we have it for many of our employees that if they're not salaried, 
if they're hourly, that they're not allowed to log in from home because we don't want them accumulating overtime hours. They're therefore not granted access. So we, we need to make big changes if we're going to have people doing remote work. Reduce community transmission with patient self-screening. Make patient screening tools accessible prior to presenting. Priority needs to be on ensuring your patients know how to self-screen. This requires putting guidance on patient-facing websites, portals, and other outreach mechanisms quickly to direct patients to appropriate resources. And guess what? They're still going to call. Our phones are ringing off the hook. I'm sure yours are as well. You've got the worried well. You've got those who are potentially exposed but not having symptoms, but yet they're a first responder. So what do you do with the firefighter, EMT, police officer that was exposed, but no symptoms? Right now, we're saying don't test anyone who doesn't have symptoms. Does that apply to someone on the front lines, to your, to your nurses, to your doctors? I think we need different rules and we need more test kits is what I think. Anyway, that's out of the University of Washington and what they're doing. There's another article, this one's in Moby Health News, and it's Practical Takeaways from America's COVID-19 Ground Zero. And this is the Chief Clinical Officer of Providence St. Joe's talking, Dr. Amy Compton, Compton Phillips. And what she's talking about, I think is also smart stuff here. So Providence treated the first patient in the United States. It's also been a front runner in implementing new technologies to address triaging and caring for patients with the condition. So they broke up their efforts into three buckets, triage, test, and treat. So in the triage world, listen to what they did. This is a quote from uh, Compton Phillips. So we worked with our digital innovation group and Microsoft to build a chat bot to help people go online and work through are you worried well and you just want to learn the symptoms of coronavirus or do you have a cough and fever and might need to get seen so you can do self-service and triage yourself for what care you need which has been incredibly helpful tool this chat bot is also linked to an on-demand patient care visit where users can get in touch with a clinician usually a nurse practitioner and go through symptoms through this tool patients can also get connected to a nurse line the first day the tools released, it had over 500,000 visitors and has continued to see use since its launch. Holy cow. Imagine if they had to try to handle those 500,000 visitors by phone calls and they, they just wouldn't have enough people to handle that. So good for them being able to stand up something like that that fast and for Microsoft for coming through with the chatbot to support them. I think that's awesome. In terms of testing, Providence plans on following the lead of South Korea and opening up drive-through testing units. Compton Phillips says that the tents are ready to be deployed as soon as the capacity for testing increases. And I think a lot of us are doing that. They're, we're going to have some kind of drive-through capability. Not so easy. You do have to have these, okay, let's say it's a tent, you're using your, your parking garage or what have you. You're going to have people driving through. But you still got to collect information on these people. You got to know who they are, especially if you're testing them. You're going to have to get labels. And that means you have to have label printers out there and computers and registration of types. And so how are you going to be able to do some quick registration for these people without exposing yourself and your staff? So these things need to be thought through. And it's very useful to look at 
what the University of Washington is doing, because they have some thoughts on that, as well as following what Providence is doing. And of course, that point of, hey, there aren't enough test kits to even start doing this. Right now, we don't have a drive-through clinic because we don't have tests. Everything's still being done at the state level. All right, in terms of treatment, they're saying the bulk of patients can be treated from home with the support of technology. So we worked very closely with our telehealth group, she says, and they were able to create a capacity to give patients seen in the emergency department a thermometer and a pulse oximeter, have them monitor at home using our telehealth capacity to be able to say, how are you doing? And are you safe to stay at home? And are you going in the wrong direction? So this is one of those things uh, that they're particularly finding useful because patients can decompensate fairly rapidly. They also are deploying iPads to their facilities to make sure that, that there's no breakdown between family communication between patients and those on the outside, because most hospitals now have visitation policies in place that are limiting access. So with iPads, they're trying to recreate some of that family connection, which is important to healing. Good for them. I think that's really spot on. All right. I am done talking coronavirus. Let's talk about some other things, huh? So, well, I actually lied. I am going to talk a little bit more about coronavirus. This is more of a financial piece here. So it comes out of HISTalk2.com. And what would be the early warning signs in a health system's financials that current events might be causing problems? From a treasury standpoint, going back to this thing about balance sheet deflation, a phrase that organizations sometimes use is fortress balance sheet. That is a balance sheet that is built to withstand shocks. Use of that concept is increasing. Most healthcare care organizations raise external capital through external debt markets where interest rates are falling and have fallen fairly dramatically. On one hand, organizations think, oh, this is great. But on the other hand, other parts of their balance sheet are affected by financial market dislocation. Let's translate that. So right now, the feds have dropped interest rates to zero. They're making money easily available, very liquid. So all kinds of companies, including healthcare, can go out on the market and get capital in order to fund what they need to get through the crisis. That's great. And your bond rating is going to be really important in that. And a lot of your bond ratings determined by the strength of your cash and what you have in reserve. Most health systems have their stuff tied up in investments, which have been doing really well. So their balance sheets look great. Well, in case you looked at the stock market lately, it's not so good. So 20, 30% of their valuation just came down. There are some health systems that are more affected by the stock market in terms of their performance on a given day than they are by operations. So this is a big deal for them if the stock market crashes in terms of their ability to get capital at favorable rates. So as a CMIO, do you need to be deeply involved with this? Not necessarily, but understand as we come out of this crisis and you're looking to go back to normal and rev up some projects, your health system may not be ready for that. There can be some financial aftershocks related to the performance of the stock portfolio of your organization having nothing to do with the fact that you canceled a ton of OR 
times because you needed the vents in the ICU and not in the OR. So there's going to be repercussions from this from a financial standpoint that simply just as a healthcare leader, you should be aware of. Next. All right, now I really am done talking about coronavirus. So this one comes out of Jamia, and this is March 2020's issue, and it's called Med Extractor, a targeted, customizable approach to medication extraction from electronic health records. So what did they do? We developed Med Extractor, a natural language processing system to extract medication information from clinical notes. Using a targeted approach, Med Extractor focuses on individual drugs to facilitate creation of medication-specific research data sets from electronic health records. So the conclusions, the system they built here achieved high performance extracting specific medication from clinical text, leading to higher quality research data sets for drug-related studies than the general purpose medication extraction tools that exist today. So I personally think this tool has uses far beyond the research realm because our medication lists are notoriously poor. Now imagine that there's a tool out there that can read our clinical notes to see what's really going on with the medications. Because not every doctor is updating their medical records or you get a, a consult note that comes in from a system that's not on your EHR. Is your staff going through that consult note to find the medication changes and update it in your medical record? Or does that only happen when the patient is in front of you? But you're making decisions about this patient's care, perhaps on a telephone call, and the patient hasn't been seen yet, but the medicines have changed. Imagine having the ability to read those notes, find the medication changes, tee that up, and present it to your medical assistant who can then say, yes, this appears to be accurate or no. So there's still a human that would probably touch it before it goes in. We need these tools. So I'm excited to see this. Okay, this one's for research realm, but it's coming. I think it'll be great. Next article out of Jamia, also same issue. This one is electronic consultations, also known as e-consults, and their outcomes, a systematic review. So electronic consultations that are clinician-to-clinician -clinician communications that may ob obviate face-to-face -face specialist visits. E-consult programs have spread within the U.S. and internationally despite limited data on outcomes. We conducted a systematic review of recent peer-reviewed literature on the effect of e-consults on access, cost, quality, and patient and clinician experience, and identified the gaps in existing research on these outcomes. Results. We found only modest empirical evidence for effectiveness of e-consults on important outcomes. Most studies are observational and within a single healthcare system, and comprehensive assessments are lacking. For those outcomes that have been reported, findings are generally positive, with mixed results for clinician experience. These findings reassure, but also raise concern for publication bias. Conclusions. Despite stakeholder enthusiasm and encouraging results in the literature, to date, more rigorous study designs applied across all outcomes are needed. So why do I raise this? Because the CMIOs, you're going to be asked to set up some of these e-consult type things. And the biggest problem that I've always had with this is people want to know, how are you going to track it so that someone can get some RVU uh, benefit? And even though they won't drop a bill, they want credit somehow that would be used towards their salary or call pay or whatever it is that they're getting from the hospital system that supports them. Because I haven't seen a lot of clinicians say, yes, I'd love to do e-consults for free. So that's been the biggest challenge is how do you track them and then how do you assign what's the value of that consult and 
I have seen that there's certainly times where the clinician does not actually need to meet the patient. The person who needs the consult is the initiating doctor. They need some help and how to manage a patient and they just want to pick an expert's brain. So there's value in that. I think the other doctor should be paid, but it's a matter of working out those logistics. Anyway, I thought that article was interesting that it's not proven by research that these things work, but we all kind of think they do. All right, next. This one comes out of Healthcare IT Analytics, and Jessica Kent wrote this on March 9th, 2020. One third of young providers are overwhelmed by patient data and analytics. A new survey reveals a clear need for provider education and training on how to leverage data analytics and technology to inform care. So 35% of younger healthcare professionals are overwhelmed. According to this survey, it's a global survey from Philips. They looked at 3,000 healthcare professionals across 15 countries. Respondents were all under the age of 40. So a couple of quotes from the article. Uh, adding to the problem that many also feel patient data they receive isn't always relevant or actionable which likely contributes to the feeling of being overwhelmed by data. 39% of clinicians reported that the patient data that's available to them isn't actionable, and 33% said that the data available to them isn't relevant. A lack of interoperability is also a significant barrier to effective data use. 58% cited improved information exchange between organizations as a top priority for improved data utilization showing that many healthcare workers are still frustrated by incompatible systems and platforms. My take on this is that CMIOs should be aware of what younger physicians are looking for, and this makes sense. We have to get away from simply displaying data and get into displaying information. And there's a big difference, because right now we will throw, here's all the patient's blood pressures that they've ever collected over the last six months, and the patient was checking it six times a day. That's data. On the other hand, if a machine could summarize that data for you and say, hey, it looks like most of the time they're doing fine. We see occasional spikes, but overall the regimen appears to be working. That's information. That's what we need, and I haven't seen that actionable information to date. But uh, I like the fact that the survey's out there kind of confirming what we know some would say, oh, the younger generation, they're going to be completely comfortable with data because they're growing up with it. Yes, I agree, but they need information, not data. Last thing I want to talk about. This one comes out of Health Catalyst. And, of course, it's a white paper that comes off of their site, so it's going to be Health Catalyst-focused. But there's some really important points in the article. The article came out March 10th. And it's four keys to increase healthcare market share. And I touch on this because every once in a while I think of CMIOs, we need to be thinking about the business of healthcare because our other administrative colleagues are doing that. Yes, we need to focus on the clinical, of course. But if you can align the clinical and the, the return on investment, I think you will find people will be more engaged around your work and pay more attention to you when you need things. So the article goes on here to talk about four keys to increasing healthcare market share. Number one is alignment. 
Health systems, large or small, often find team members pursuing different goals, proving that alignment at every level is crucial. Realistic, long-lasting changes start with practicing providers who still care for patients and work with frontline staff. With providers at the helm of new alignment changes, other providers and clinicians are more likely to support the changes and ensure that they are realistic and sustainable. I wholeheartedly agree with this. Empowering providers to take the lead is critical if you want to make real change at the front line on the way providers practice. And that's where the expenses are being driven. And anyone who thinks that they can simply cut staff or cut tools and cut their way to profitability is missing the real money that's hidden inside your healthcare system that's being wasted due to variability in care. The article goes on to talk a little bit more about alignment. They go on to talk about a provider contract, which they describe as a simple yet clear document that defines the mission, vision, and guiding principles. I don't know. I, I know people do these. I don't see them as valuable. I've been through this exercise. We, there'll be a few engaged providers that help build this and the rest of the organization thinks it's not worth the paper. It's printed on, crumples it up, throws it out because it's administration's actions that matter to them. And the same thing, administrators are more concerned about with the provider's actions. Are we going to work together or are we going to fight each other? And it doesn't have to be adversarial. So I don't think you need these uh, these documents, these contracts where physicians are signing this and administrators are signing them in formal ceremonies. I don't see it, but maybe you've had more success than I have with these things. All right. The second thing they talk about, which are the vehicles to helping change happen here. So after the foundation of alignment is laid, it is time to clarify expectations and responsibilities. The first step is to create and then define centers of excellence. Leadership teams can define centers of excellence, such as a heart or vascular institute, as a patient-centric program focusing on the financial and clinical outcomes and the role of process improvement and care coordination within care settings and across teams and organizations. I like this. I think service line centers of excellence are important. There are benchmarks to compare to, and the clinicians will feel that it's really about the care. If you make this all about the finances, they're going to disengage. So a center of excellence is about the clinical care being excellent. The finances come from excellent clinical care. Then number three here is going on to talk about a handful of tools and the center of excellence is for them to be able to do what they need to do. You got to give them access to data. And of course, this is a health catalyst article. So you're starting to see their slant on this, but they're right. You cannot make change happen without showing where you are now and showing the outliers and the variability in care. Data acumen is another thing that they call out as being important. And absolutely, you have to understand the data and being able to explain the data to others. I think that is awesome. And one of the lines they say here is making the data transparent. Through increasing data transparency, all team members understand that data matters and plays an important role in measuring progress. They also go on to say here that uh, increased transparency leads to increased engagement. 
Love it. Absolutely. If you take data and you put it in the main hallway where cardiologists go to see who's next for cardiac catheterizations and the providers can see the different tools that are being used and who's an outlier, and then they can just ask, say, what are you finding so great about this? And maybe learn something new, or maybe the other provider didn't know that they were an outlier, and they can look at the data together and work together to move towards less variation. I think the transparency piece is really important, not something we're very good at in healthcare. We like to, it's all top secret. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Make it, make it wide open. Next, I talk about making financial data available. The reasons behind cost variation are an opportunity to prompt thoughtful discussion between the providers and administrators that can lead to increased awareness about the cost of ordering unnecessary lab tests, keeping patients too long, etc. So the initiatives have to be about improving care. The docs are going to disengage, like I said before. But be sure to reduce variability of care, which is going to leave the cost lead to the cost savings. It's just a side benefit of improved care. Be sure to measure that and show it off along with, of course, you put the clinical stuff first, but then, oh, by the way, this is the beneficial financial thing that we just did too. And now you're going to get more support for your next project. Uh, let's see. The other tools they talk about is vision to execution, which is just helping people understanding Okay, now that you got your data, how are you going to get to where you need to go to fix this? And then the last tool they talk about here is prioritizing outcomes. And that's because you're going to have so many projects to tackle. You got to figure out which are the right ones to go after. And as CMIOs, I think you have a really clear role in, in, these, in this part because you're the translator between not only the clinicians and IT, but between the data and the clinicians you will know best where that data came from, whether that data is valuable or garbage, and how to best use that data. And your analysts, most of the time, are not going to have the clinical acumen to really understand what you know. And so this is where the CMIO shines, is being able to help drive these projects along with the chief quality officer and the two should be working hand in hand. And we do that in where I am now. And I love the relationship, the partnership I have with our chief quality officer. Whatever he's into finding and trying to fix, I want to be right by his side saying, here's the data that we can help you with. And here's the tools in the electronic health record that we can utilize to help drive change. Where the electronic health record plays a role. Many times it's just a matter of education. So... And that's their final thing they talk about here is education. And that's really tough to do. That's the, the fourth key thing that they're talking about in this article. The education is tough because when margins get tight, education and training get cut first. So you have to show that there's a return on investment for what you're doing, that the education is an important part of making it stick. Otherwise, you just stirred up a nice project that last six months, maybe a year, the focus then shifts to the next emergency and how old habits return and you're just chasing your tail around. So I think that's an important point is that you got to get that education in there to help it stick and reinforce it so that it's not a one-time education, but it's part of continuous education. And then finally, they also talk about having aligned leadership. So 
that you have the providers and administrators are key players in leading the change and they're doing it together in dyad models. I'm a fan of dyad models. I've seen them work really well. I've also seen them work horribly. And I think it requires forethought and planning. I think one of the worst things someone ever did to me is when I was first entering into a leadership role is they said, hey, you're going to be a dyad partner with this other person. And they never told the other person. So here I come along as an eager clinician ready to start. And this administrator is wondering what in the world is this doctor doing and why are they messing in my business? And so it's so important to have those conversations about how you're going to work together, who's handling what, how are you going to deal with the situation when one parent says no and then the individual runs to the other parent to see if they can get a yes from them. So it's going to happen. So that's the only downside to the dyad model. You got to be a strong, solid team. So I think in summary, Health Catalyst has a great article here. Go to their website, four keys to increasing healthcare market share. And though they're suggesting here is you grow market share by having clinical centers of excellence that can demonstrate solid outcomes and financial return on investment. I agree with that. And let's wrap it up there. That's our show for today. And let's wrap it up there. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.